welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi. This is a very special a episode. A very special episode. So last week, we tried to give you guys a heads up about this forthcoming episode, um, which actually came because a lot of people told us they wanted to do this. It's probably the most engagement we've ever gotten. <laughs> With anything that we've tossed off yeah. in an episode. Yeah. And also, I think maybe we didn't originally remember even saying this. No, absolutely not. I could not. Re- like, we were get- I was like, why are we getting so many tweets about cheese? <laughs> <laughs> and then I listened to the episode. And I was like, oh, right. Oh, yeah. So um, if you missed it, uh, last week we told you to buy four kinds of cheese for our eat along at home, cheese along at home with me and Julia. And we're going to be talking about each of these individual cheeses, the cheese making process, some facts about cheese and a great quiz. And we have a beautiful spread in front of us. So uh, Julia, tell us a little bit about this spread and what kinds of cheeses we have. Oh, okay. Well, yes, because we gave you the shopping list. Yes. Okay. So we have some brie, mm-hmm. some cheddar, mm-hmm. some Asiago and some Gouda. Yes. And um, I also threw on, you know, some fruit and some crackers and some bread. And we have some wine nearby and all this great stuff. So we're hoping that this will be a good episode for everybody for the week of Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. because maybe you're not traveling. Maybe you're maybe it's a different kind of Thanksgiving this year. So we were hoping that we could bring a little bit of a little bit of us into your home. Yep. A little bit of uh, let's let's snack together if we can't be together, you know. It's a great line. Thank TM, you. TM, 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 TM. So uh, that, again, if you missed the the grocery list from last week, you can pause it right now Yeah, and go to the grocery store. You just have to get yourself a regular-ass brie, a, re- a regular-ass cheddar, a regular-ass Asiago, and a regular-ass Gouda. All right. And if you're unfamiliar with Lauren's terminology, regular-ass um, is not a brand. No, it's not. Um, it's, <laughs> it's not, not a an special ad. aging process <laughs> no. of any of these types of cheeses. No. Uh, so yeah, we were trying to pick things that we thought would be um, pretty accessible and, mm-hmm. you know, that you wouldn't have to go to a place that you had to knock three times and spin in a yeah. circle on a Tuesday at 7 p.m. to be able to get. Or have to talk to a, you know, creatively bearded cheesemaker named Trevor who doesn't let you actually make bespoke, bespoke cheeses cheese out of wheels out of his pet sheep <laughs> milk sure i was like what has milk quick <laughs> where does milk come from oh god <laughs> <laughs> oh god so um so please today sit back pour yourself a glass of wine or pour yourself or a juice juice yeah or maybe some apple juice or a, anything a, anything really a beer a whiskey an, a t- tall, cool glass of water to to cleanse the palate in between each individual cheeses. Whatever you want, sit down with your spread and please cheese along at home with us. <laughs> Lauren walked into my house uh, singing a, like a theme song for this, and we immediately <laughs> forgot it. So yeah, we, did. <laughs> we did. I do like to make up songs at home. Um, so I was singing it to myself on my way over I've learned was, that's what like 80% of being a parent is, is just, just singing. making up songs just, oh, to, well then, pff, I'm just to fill the time and <laughs> fill the silence. Engagement. I yeah, don't know. Exactly. Anyway, so like Lauren said, we're going to cover a couple of different topics about cheese and then we are going to talk about specific cheeses. Uh, we'll talk about all kinds of wonderful 
characteristics and aspects and origins and what to pair things with. And so first, before we get into specific cheeses, we are going to talk about a little bit of background on cheese. So here we are, guys. Great. Cheese, our favorite dairy product. Mm. It is derived from milk and produced in wide ranges of flavors, textures, and forms through the coagulation of the milk protein casein. Um, people who love cheese are called turophiles. Ooh. So that's from the ancient Greek toros, meaning cheese, and file, meaning loving, friendly, or friend. I so. am a friend of cheese. Yes. So the word cheese itself comes from the Latin casus, from which the modern word casein is also derived. In Middle English, it was known as chis, and in Old English as cheese or cheese. <laughs> you hear the difference? No. The difference in my term? Cheese or cheese, or maybe case. <laughs> it just sounds like you're saying the word I cheese know. in a funny voice. Anyway, <laughs> but anyway, the English version gave us the Dutch kas and the German queso. So um, when Romans began to make hard cheeses for their supplies of the army, a new word began to be used, formaticum, from casus formatus or molded cheese, as in formed, not like moldy cheese. Sure, yeah. And it is from that word that we get the French fromage and the Italian formaggio. Mm, okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And from the Romance languages, um, Spanish, Portuguese, Romanian, Tuscan, and Southern Italian, Italian dialects use words derived from cases. So like queso, cajillo, and cas, for example. So that's where all the words come from. So you should be able to, you know, spot that if you're looking at a menu in a foreign language or something. Um, During the production of cheese, milk is usually acidified. It could be sometimes with vinegar or lemon juice. Um, The milk proteins coagulate after the addition of rennet. Um, Those or also with enzymes of a similar activity. So rennet are enzymes produced in the stomach of ruminant animals. Mm. And in vegetarian or kosher cheeses, um, bacterial yeast or mold-derived chymosin is used instead. And the solids are the curd, and they are separated from the liquid called the whey, and they're pressed into their final form. So approximately 10 pounds of cow or goat milk is required to make one pound of cheese but only six pounds if you're using sheep's milk. Oh, great. So what a bargain. That's great. Um, So, you know, cheese is made up of the curds and milk solids are made up of fat. So essentially sheep's milk is fattier. So there's a higher proportion of fatty curd producing solids in the milk. Um, So there's not as much milk required to make the same amount of cheese. Uh, Goat milk tends to be the lowest in fat of the three milk types and cow milk varies greatly depending on the breed, but generally falls somewhere between the fat content of goat and sheep's milk. There's a rich, thick layer of fat-filled cream that rises to the top of cow's milk, which signifies that the milk is unhomogenized. And goat and sheep milk, on the other hand, they're naturally homogenized. So the fat globules in these milks are smaller and don't separate from the less dense water-based components in the milk. Um, Most cow milk usually ends up going through a process of homogenization before it's sold. So that fuses the cream with the milk for a totally emulsified liquid. And uh, the fact that cow's milk is naturally unhomogenized explains why you can find cheeses made with part skim cow's milk. Um, It's not as easier to skim the fat from goat or sheep's milk. Interesting. The earliest proposed dates for the origin of cheesemaking range from around 8,000 BCE when uh, sheep were first domesticated. And since ancient times, animals' skins and their internal organs provided storage vessels for a variety of foodstuffs. So it's probable that the process of cheesemaking was discovered accidentally by storing milk in a container mm. made from the stomach of an animal, resulting in the milk being sure. turned to curds and whey by the rennet from the stomach. So mm. hmm, what a happy accident. <laughs> and um, someone was like, 
we should I, eat this. I dare you to eat this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At one point or another, can you just, everything was like, should we eat this? <laughs> Michael eat it. It's <laughs> called Mike. Um, ancient cheese strainers were found in Poland, suggesting it dated back to at least 7,500 years ago. And murals found in Egyptian tombs from 4,000 years ago show cheeses and the art of cheese making. Uh, during the Roman Empire, uh, large Roman houses actually had separate kitchens for making cheese. Oh, so that's okay. pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, and the earliest cheeses were likely sour and salty, um, similar in texture to rustic cottage cheese or feta. And cheese produced in Europe where climates are cooler than the Middle East required less salt for preservation. So mm. with less salt and acidity, the cheese became a suitable environment for useful microbes and molds, giving aged cheeses their flavors. Uh, cheese wheels exist for a reason. So traditional European cheesemakers realized they could just roll their wares around town oh, instead perfect. of trying to carry it all. And also forcing cheese into a tight round shape produces sturdier cheeses and cylindrical cheeses are less likely to overripe. Uh, cheese production around the world is more than the combined worldwide production of coffee, tobacco, tea, and cocoa beans. Oh, wow. And there are more than 2,000 varieties of cheese available worldwide. And the most consumed worldwide... You know it? The most consumed the cheese? The most consumed cheese worldwide. Oof. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm going to say feta. Ah, it's mozzarella. Oh, ah, see, that was thinking that first, but I was like, nah, that's too, no, that's too obvious. It's too Italian. <laughs> I realize I, like, I started saying Italian like that because it's kind of how my dad says it just as like a Pittsburgh like a thing. Joke. And now I only say it like that. <laughs> well, as Sorry, an Italian. Everybody. Thanks for that. <laughs> Um, also, just as a quick fact, um, as a country, the United States produces the most cheese in the world annually. So, uh, again, types of cheese are grouped or classified according to criteria such as length of fermentation, texture, methods of production, fat content, animal milk, and country or region of origin. And the method most commonly and traditionally used is based on moisture content, which is then further down by fat content and curing or ripening methods. So that's where you hear terms like fresh cheese, whey cheese, stretched curd cheese, cooked pressed cheeses, or categorization by moisture like soft, semi-soft, or hard. Um, and before we really get into cheese, I just wanted to give you some quick storage tips Ooh, from the International Dairy Foods Association. Mm, okay. okay. First of all, do not store cheese with other strong smelling foods because mm. as cheese breathes, it will absorb other aromas and may spoil. Make sure you wrap soft cheeses loosely. Use waxed or greaseproof paper rather than cling film and keep the cheese in conditions in which it matures. So hards, hemi-hard, and semi-soft cheeses are stored in temperatures from around 8 to 13 degrees Celsius or between 46 and 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you also want to make sure that the cheese that's wrapped in wax paper is placed in a loose-fitting food bag so that it doesn't lose humidity and maintains the circulation of air. Uh, blue cheeses, especially, you got to mm. be careful about. You got to wrap those all over because there's mold spores on those oh, and they sure. spread readily, not only to other cheeses, but to also everything else in the fridge. And let cold cheese warm up for about a half an hour to an hour before eating to allow the flavor and aroma to develop. Um, we did that today. We did that like... On purpose. Guys. We did it on purpose. Julie actually texted me and was like, make sure you take your cheese out of the fridge before you come over here. Exactly. And I said, oh, it's already out. <laughs> it's on the table. It's waiting. <laughs> and so, so say you have everything in the fridge. It's been in there for like a week mm. and you go and you check on your cheese. When in doubt about moldy cheese, throw it out. 
When, oh. when in doubt, throw it out. Sure, you know? yeah, just in general. Um, so soft cheeses like cream cheese, ricotta cheese, and cottage cheese that have grown mold should be discarded. Sure. Um, any type of cheese that's crumbled, sliced, or shredded, if it's moldy, throw it out. Yeah. Um, hard and semi-soft cheeses like Colby, cheddar, Parmesan, and Swiss actually aren't too easily penetrated by mold, so you can cut away the moldy part of cheeses like that and eat the rest. Um, And of course, um, soft, very soft cheeses like Camembert and Brie, which mold is actually used to make, are completely safe to eat before you cut them open. Yeah, yeah, within reason. Yes, exactly. So just wanted to get that all out of the way. Perfect. All right, so let's begin with our cheeses. We're going to start with a with a gouda. So let's let's start with a gouda here. Oh yes. A plate for you, oh, thank my friend. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Julia has these beautiful plates um, that are French, of course. Where did you get these? A uh, friend got them for me. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna take a piece of, of gouda. I'm also gonna get take a slice of pear. Okay. We'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, I'm gonna grab a uh, Engineer Josh is, Engineer of course, Josh joining is, in. Engineer Josh is joining with us in this. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have grabbed you a pair. Um, okay. So please feel free to snack as I speak. Yeah. So just as a warning, like, we're probably going to be making some mouth sounds on this episode. So if you get super grossed out by that, it's probably the time to tune out. <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, I'm going to try and chew away from the microphone, but, you know, there's we're, we're eating. We're actively eating while this is happening. Okay. <clears throat> First, I'll talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it with my mouth open. Um, Gouda, or Gouda, as it's pronounced <laughs> in the Netherlands. I will not be using Gouda for the rest of this uh, talk. But Gouda is a mild-flavored yellow cow's milk cheese originating from the Netherlands. Uh, it is one of the most popular cheeses worldwide, and the name is used today as a general term for numerous similar cheeses produced in the traditional Dutch manner. And I'll get mm-hmm. more into that later. The first mention of Gouda cheese dates from 11... I you said you weren't going to do that. Okay, that's the last time. Okay. Wait, do you want any wine? Because we have light... Uh, it's, a, it's a light cheese, so we're going to drink a little... We're drinking Billsboro Riesling. A Riesling is very good for um, cheese tasting uh, because it's light and it's fruity. Uh, and Excellent uh, pour. This is not, thank you. This is not an ad. It's, we just love the product. Anyway, um, the first mention of Gouda cheese dates from 1184, making it one of the oldest recorded cheeses in the world still made today. Uh, Cheese making traditionally was a woman's task in Dutch culture, with farmers' wives passing their cheese making skills on to their daughters. During summer months in the city of Gouda, South Holland, there is a cheese market in a traditional style once a week, primarily as a tourist attraction. Uh, Most Dutch Gouda is now produced industrially, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. However, some 300 Dutch farmers still produce burinkas, which is farmer's cheese, uh, which is a protected form of Gouda made in the traditional manner using unpasteurized milk. So the cheese, as you can imagine, is named after the city of Gouda, not because it was produced in or around that city, but because it was traded there. Okay. Yeah. So in the Middle Ages, Dutch cities could obtain certain feudal rights, which gave them primacy or total monopoly on certain goods. Within the county of Holland, Gouda acquired market rights on cheese, the sole right to have a market in which the country's farmers could sell their cheese. All the cheeses would be taken to the market square and Gouda to be sold. Teams consisting of the Guild of Cheese Porters, identified by distinct, differently colored straw hats, carried the farmer's cheese 
which typically weighed about 16 kilograms in barrows. And buyers then sampled the cheeses and negotiated a price using a ritual bargaining system called Hanjiklap, in which buyers and sellers clap each other's hands and shout out prices. So it's basically they're high-fiving to a certain extent and calling out- Five shekels. No, four shekels. (laughs) 450 shekels. I don't think, that's not shekels. What are they? I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember. Um, And I was reading some like Dutch mystery books at one point this summer, but regardless, once the price was agreed upon, the porters would carry the cheese to the weighing house and then they would complete the sale. Um, various sources suggest that the term Gouda refers more to a general style of cheese making rather than to a specific kind of cheese, pointing to its taste, which varies with age. So young and factory produced Gouda mm-hmm. has been described as having flavor that is, quote, lightly fudgy with nuts, but very, very, very mild. Mm. While the same source describes a more mature farmhouse Gouda as having, quote, a lovely fruit tang with a sweet finish that may take on an almost butterscotch flavor if aged over two years. As Gouda ages, it develops a caramel sweetness and has a slight crunchiness from cheese crystals, which I'm imagining you're tasting right now. This is especially in older cheeses. This is, by the way, a Beemster Gouda. Beemster is a Dutch company. Yes. Um, And this is a mild Gouda that we're eating right Mm -hmm. now. In the Netherlands, cubes of Gouda are often eaten as a snack served with Dutch mustard, and older varieties are sometimes topped with sugar or apple butter, and cubes of old and very old Gouda are eaten alongside strong beers or with port wine. So um, a fun fact about Gouda cheese, it is uh, an excellent source of vitamin K2. Have you ever heard of it? I have, um, I have not. Can I climb that mountain? I know, right? It's like that's a designation for mountains, but no. It's also a vitamin. Uh, Apparently, K2 is essential for good health resistance to aging, some protection from cancer, diabetic, and degenerative diseases. It also provides vitamin B12, which slows down brain aging, protects against heart disease, and facilitates the growth of nerve cells. So we're going to talk about vitamin K for like a second. Vitamin K was discovered in 1929 as an essential nutrient for blood coagulation or blood clotting. The initial discovery was reported in a German scientific journal where it was called coagulationsvitamin. Wow, just calling it what it is. I know, right? Uh, which is where the K comes from because coagulation in German no. is spelled with a K. <gasps> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was also discovered by the dentist Weston Price who traveled the world in the early 20th century studying the relationship between diet and disease in different populations. He found that non-industrial diets were high in some unidentified nutrient which seemed to provide protection against tooth decay and chronic disease. He referred to this mystery nutrient as Activator X, which is now believed to have been That's a much K. cooler name. I know. I'm not I mean, going to lie. Gouda is full of Activator X. <laughs> I love it. So in terms of pairings with a Gouda cheese, mm-hmm. I looked to Rodolfo Moraes. He's the owner and founder of Grapes and Grains, which is grapesandgrains.org. He says, Gouda is a perfect pairing with fruit, crackers, bread, and mustard. An aged Gouda can be eaten on its own if you enjoy its complex, nutty flavor. Gouda can be paired with beer, wine, or whiskey, but the pairing will depend on the age of the Gouda. The important aspect of pairing is the is to achieve the balance of flavor, as the cheese should not overpower the drink, or the drink should not bury the flavor of the cheese. Mm-hmm. The flavor descriptors in a Gouda, such as nutty, smoky, or sweet, are also found in different beers and whiskeys, hence the pairing that can complement each other. So specifically, if you want to pair your Gouda with beer, 
Gouda pairs well with brown ales or amber ales, which also have a nutty caramel flavor. Mm -hmm. Aged Gouda goes well with a stronger and maltier Doppelbach, a Belgium double, or a stout with roasted coffee and chocolate flavors. And smoked Gouda is a good pairing with Bach beer, which has a strong toasted flavor, or a smoked porter. A smoked porter? Yeah. I I don't know. I'm not really a beer gal, but I imagine that's, you know, something. So more along our speed, wine. So wine... Uh, pairings with Gouda. So Gouda with its mild nutty flavor and fruity taste is a good pairing with Champagne, Cava, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, as we're drinking Mm -hmm. now, Pinot Noir, and Merlot. Uh, A slightly smoked Gouda will enhance the pairing experience and also complement a Zinfandel or a Shiraz. An aged Gouda with a more complex nutty flavor goes well with a Chardonnay, a Riesling, or a Tawny Port wine. And finally, um, Gouda pairs well with whiskey. Um, it pairs well specifically with a single malt scotch from Speyside because of its combination of nutty and fruit flavor. And an aged Gouda goes well with an aged bourbon or rye whiskey or a Highland scotch with more intense flavors, while a smoked Gouda is a good pairing with a peated scotch or whiskey. And also, I found that it tastes really good with pears. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this particular Gouda is very distinctive. Like, mm-hmm. Gouda to me is one of those cheeses that when it's just on that university sponsored cheese platter, mm-hmm. you can identify which one the Gouda is because it's it has that nice, really creamy flavor, like yep. a very distinctive, like buttery texture, very smooth. Yes. It has an interesting mouthfeel with like the crystals. And if you're somebody that likes cheese but doesn't like like really strong, strong cheese, I think Gouda is a nice gateway to like more exotic. Oh, yeah maybe not as immediately delicious flavors of cheese. Good is great. Agreed. Very um, versatile. A versatile cheese. It is. And let me tell you, I was just watching today Please. the Christmas cookie challenge on Food Network. <laughs> sure. And they had to make a garland of cookies to hang over a mantle. And they said, here's the twist. Mantles, fireplace, smoke, you got to add one of these smoked ingredients into your cookie. So they had like smoked paprika, smoked almonds, um, and smoked Gouda was one of the options. And so the girl that did the Gouda, she said, I'm making a a shortbread cookie Mm -hmm. and I am using butter in that, but I'm also including some of the smoked Gouda. And she like grated it into it because it had like kind of the same like textures that you would get from the amount of butter that she was adding to these cookies Mm -hmm. and the judges they went wild of course i never would have ever thought let me let me put some smoked gouda in my in my shortbread cookie that's and thought that it would be good that sounds delicious versatile versatile such a versatile cheese highly recommended Mm. she's tasty I believe Josh just cut out about five minutes of us just eating. Eating and, and going, mmm, mmm, mmm. Mm. All right. So I'm going to talk about cheddar cheese. Mm. Classic. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the origin first, and then I will talk about what we have on the plate in front of us. Great. So cheddar. It originated in the English village of cheddar in Somerset, southwest England, but it is now produced all over the world. The term cheddar cheese is widely used, but it doesn't have a protected designation of origin. But in 2007, a protected designated of origin for West Country Farmhouse Cheddar was created, meaning only cheddar produced from local milk within Somerset, Dorset, Devon, and Cornwall and manufactured using traditional methods may use that name. So West Country Farmhouse Cheddar is protected. 
Um, Cheddar Gorge on the edge of the village of Cheddar contains a number of caves, which provided the ideal humidity and steady temperature for maturing the cheeses. Get out. Wow. Mm -hmm. So some characteristics of Cheddar. We all seem to be pretty familiar with it, right? Absolutely, yeah. So cheddar can be a deep to pale yellow or kind of an off-white color or a yellow-orange color when certain plant extracts are added, such as beet juice. Uh, One commonly used spice is annatto, which is extracted from the seeds of the tropical achiote tree. And it was originally added to simulate the color of a high-quality milk from grass-fed Jersey and Guernsey cows, but annatto may also impart a sweet, nutty flavor. Uh, Cheddar that does not contain annatto is frequently labeled as white cheddar or Vermont cheddar, regardless of where it was actually produced. So cheddar made in the classical way tends to have a sharp, pungent flavor. It's often slightly earthy. Uh, The flavors vary on the dairy animal's diet, and the sharpness of the cheddar is associated with the level of bitter peptides in the cheese. And the bitterness has been found to be significant to the overall perception of the aged cheddar flavor. So the texture of a cheddar, it's firm. Um, Farmhouse traditional cheddar can be slightly crumbly too. If it's mature, it should contain large cheese crystals consisting of the calcium lactate, as Lauren mentioned. Joseph Harding, a 19th century dairyman and the father of cheddar cheese, (laughs) described the ideal quality as, quote, close and firm in texture, yet mellow in character, rich with a tendency to melt in the mouth, and has full and fine flavor somewhat like hazelnut. Mm. He's credited for the standardization of cheddar cheese through technical innovations in the cheesemaking process. And cheddar cheese was sometimes and can still be found packaged in black wax. As you might <gasps> spot here on the table in front of you. Oh my God, you're uh, right. But it was more commonly packaged in larded cloth, which was impermeable to contaminants, but still allowed the cheese to breathe. So, what I have here in front of us yeah. is I have a six month old cheddar from Wisconsin, which is sliced. nicely sliced mm-hmm. into tiny, thin, cheddary pieces. And then I have a four year aged cheddar that is covered in black wax. And I was we're probably going to have was. to take a second to like. <laughs> chip through the it. wax so that we can get to the cheese. So the process of how they make cheddar. Um, it's interesting. There's a whole thing called cheddaring, which is like why it's, why it's so distinctive. So they start off with raw milk. Um, it's either usually whole or 3.3% fat in a stainless steel vat. And the milk has to be ripened before you add in the rennet. And the term ripening means allowing the lactic acid bacteria to turn lactose into lactic acid, which lowers the pH of the solution and aids in the coagulation of the milk. And so this is vital for the production of cheese curds. Rennet is added to the milk to coagulate the milk protein to form the curds. And the mixture is kept at around 29 to 31 degrees Celsius or 84 to 88 degrees Fahrenheit. And temperature of the vats is controlled by flowing warm water through the jacket of the vat. So there's setting time that varies and allowing a proper amount of time is vital. It takes anywhere between 30 to 40 minutes to set the curd. And the most common way to determine when the curd is set is by inserting a flat blade at a 45 degree angle into the curd and raising it slowly. So if it breaks cleanly, leaving a glassy fracture, it's ready for cutting. So the curd is cut into 6 to 16 millimeter or about a quarter to five-eighths of an inch cubes using stainless steel wire knives. So a smaller cube size means that the cheese will be lower in moisture and a larger cube size results in a higher moisture cheese. The curds are handled gently after cutting to prevent fat and protein loss to the whey and the curd is prevented from sticking to the sides of the vat. 
they're allowed to set again for about 10 to 15 minutes. They then cook the curd by adding hot water (laughs) to the jacket of the vat. And the curd is stirred constantly during this step to avoid uneven cooking or overcooking. And the cooking will only take about 20 to 60 minutes, depending on the process. So the whey's pH will be around 6.1 to 6.4 by the end of the cooking. And then they remove the whey. They drain it out of the vat. When most of the whey is gone, they rake the curds to either side and allow the whey to drain down the middle of the two piles. So cheddaring is the unique process in making cheddar cheese that involves stacking loaves of curd on top of one another to squeeze additional whey out of the loaves below. So this is a multi-step process that reduces the whey content, adjusts acidity, adds characteristic flavor, and results in a denser and sometimes crumbly texture. When the turning process of the loaves is complete, the loaves have to be cut down into a size that fits into the cheese mill, and the mill will cut the matted curd into pieces. And during this process, the mill curds are constantly stirred to avoid rematting. And when all the curd is milled, they add salt and mix thoroughly. So the amount of salt varies, but it is usually between 1% and 3% by weight. So salt helps remove some of the whey from the cheese, which lowers the moisture content, adds to the flavor, and stops the cheese from becoming too acidic or imparting a bitter taste. Wow. I know. I didn't know how cheese was made, and I love it. (laughs) It also sounds kind of fun. Yeah, test. Doop, doop, doop. Yep, and layering. Lots and of tinkering loaves. and layering. And mm-hmm. so the curds are placed into molds that'll be used to press the curds and form blocks of cheddar. And after this, the cheddar cheese will be aged. So aging time depends upon the type of cheddar. In general, mild cheddar is aged for two to three months, while mature, sharp, and extra mature cheddar is aged 12 to 18 months or more. So, like I said, the um, cheddars that I brought out in front of us, we have a six month old cheddar and a four-year-age cheddar. So there should be a very distinctive difference there is between a, the two. There is a distinctive difference. And can I tell you, while the six-month is very good, the four-year is, as my good friend Jeff Mayer says, delicious. Just wonderful. Wow, the four... The four-year one is a little farmy. It's a little farmy, but I kind of like it. And it's yeah. really... Can I tell you, the four-year with the Riesling? Yes. Mwah, <laughs> Thousand little kisses to the angels. So good. That's good to hear. So things that you would pair cheddar with, besides just like slapping it on a sandwich or a burger. Sure. For fruit, you would pair it with apple or pear wedges, also grapes or droops. For wine, um, I found that um, cheddar between 9 and 12 months has a slightly sweet buttery flavor and pairs great with Chardonnay or Riesling. Mm. And as it ages, it gets drier, nuttier, and you kind of get those more toasted hazelnut flavors. And then it goes really well with Pinot Noir or Barbera or Ruby Port or Champagne or sparkling white wines. Mm. Um, They say that cheddar aged for more than four years pairs with Cabernet Sauvignon, Shiraz, Rioja, Nebbiolo, or Tawny Port. Uh, Beer-wise, they cheddar just cries out for a bitter or fruity mm-hmm. beer. Um, so cheddar aged 9 to 12 months goes well with a Pilsner or a Hell's Lager. Um, those tend to be smooth and crisp with a mild bitterness and spicy flavor. Also a Kolsch due to its fruity, smooth, crisp mm-hmm. body that has a mild bitterness. Cheddar aged for two to three years goes well with brown ales, which are maltier and sweeter on the palate. And cheddar aged for four years or more goes really well with pale ales and imperial IPAs. Um, you can also definitely pair your cheddar cheese with crackers, crusty bread, Absolutely. a hearty sausage on a Ooh. on a board. Ooh. Oh man. I would eat that right now. <laughs> 
you know, are also obviously mustard, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of all kinds of great things. So there are some fun trivia facts about cheddar out there. Ooh. But I'm just gonna take another yeah, bite take of this a little real quick. snack. I'm gonna I'm gonna grab a piece of bread because that just just tickled my fancy. The idea of putting cheddar on bread, mm-hmm. and you know what? I feel like. I feel like a hardworking, wide-hipped peasant woman when I eat cheddar with bread, you know? It's just like salt-of-the-earth worker food. Like, I'm just going to put me some cheddar on this bread, and I'm going to go back out in the fields. You know I what I mean? I love me a plowman's lunch. Oh, a plowman's lunch. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> so... Cheddar is the most popular type of cheese in the United Kingdom. It accounts for 51% of the country's 1.9 billion with a B dollars in annual cheese sales. Jeez. It is the second most popular cheese in the U.S. behind mozzarella with an average consumption of 10 pounds per person. And I've we're contributing to that. To that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Some fun Fun cheddar throughout history. In 1835, a farmer in New York honored Andrew Jackson with a 1,400-pound wheel of cheddar cheese that was four feet in diameter and two feet thick. Um, Andrew Jackson had no freaking clue what to do with it, so he left it in the White House lobby to age for a year, and he finally served it during his final party that he threw as president in 1837. Um, From Benjamin Purley Poor's 1886 book, Purley's Remembrances of 60 Years in the National Metropolis, he wrote, quote, For hours did a crowd of men, women, and boys hack at the cheese, (laughs) many taking large chunks of it away with them. When they commenced, the cheese weighed 1,400 pounds, and only a small piece was saved for the president's use. The air was redolent with cheese. The carpet was slippery with cheese, and nothing else was talked about at Washington that day. Um, I also read that, um, so like when Jackson left the White House, like Van Buren and Mm -hmm. his wife took over and his wife spent like three weeks just airing out the goddamn White House just because she said that the whole thing just smelled of cheese that had been sitting in the White House for a year. That's disgusting. And Andrew Jackson was the worst. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, name a, a... a 19th century president that wouldn't, you know, that would 100% leave a big hunk of cheese in the lobby of the White House. Um, It's Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson. <laughs> He's not the only head of state to get a big, big ass wheel of cheese as a really? present, though. During the celebration of her wedding to her first cousin, Prince Albert, in 1840, Queen Victoria received oh the gift of a 1,250-pound, nine-foot diameter cheddar. It was produced by a cooperative of cheesemakers from two villages. And according to Stephen W. Jenkins in his book, Cheese Primer, quote, (laughs) perhaps baffled by how to serve it, she sent the cheese off on a tour of England. (laughs) When attempts were made to return it to her, she refused to take it back. (laughs) Yeah. That's a nice gift. Yeah. You guys enjoy it. Please show everyone else. (laughs) All right. A 7,000 pound cheese no. or 3,200 kilograms was produced in Ingersoll, Ontario in 1866 and exhibited in New York and Britain. It was described in the poem, quote, Ode on the Mammoth Cheese Weighing Over 7,000 no. Pounds by Canadian poet James McIntyre. I will link to that poem Please do. in the comments on our Facebook page because, I mean, I, I can't. You know what? I wish I knew about this beforehand because I would have done a live reading at our at my wedding. You know? <laughs> it's, I feel like I missed an, an opportunity. It's really an ode <laughs> to the mammoth cheese weighing over 7,000 pounds. Like, just, just, I don't know what else to what call it this says poem. On the tin. Yeah. Right there. But 
We're not being outdone. In 1893, farmers from the town of Perth, Ontario, produced what they called the mammoth cheese, weighing 10,000 pounds. What the what? A 10,000 pound cheese for the Chicago World's Fair. It was planned to be exhibited at the Canadian Display, but the gigantic cheese fell through the floor of the hall and had to be placed instead on a reinforced concrete floor in the agricultural building. Oh my God. It received the most journalistic attention at the fair and was awarded the bronze medal. What was the the late the mid to late nineteenth century and just making big ass you things of cheese? What else are they up to? I know they don't have they didn't they have tea. They don't have much, <laughs> um, but it's very funny there. So I'll also link to this. Um, the Perth, Ontario, like historical society, they're very proud of this. This is of the course. this is what they this is what their town's known yes. for. They've had monuments to it. Oh. They've tried to recreate it. Wow, it's. Um, just real great stuff out of Canada. You guys, excellent. Great excellent job. Excellent cheddar cheese makers. When the borders open up again, we should go we and visit wait. that giant cheese. We can't wait. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, there's some processed cheeses or, quote, cheese foods mm. that are called, quote, cheddar flavored. Um, <laughs> so examples include Easy Cheese, which is a cheese food packaged in a pressurized spray can. I'm not going to lie. I love good cheese, but I also, I'm not going to turn down an easy cheese. No, you know what? I'm not going to turn down spraying it. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Can you, do you remember in like fourth grade? That was like the height of luxury. You got yourself some Ritz crackers. Yes. And you turn that cheese can upside down because you finally learned how to use it. Yeah. And you you could, you could make little stars. Yeah, little dollops. Little rosettes Mm -hmm. of cheese. Oh my gosh. Do like a spiral tower. Oh, the spiral. Oh my gosh. So that cannot be called cheddar it can I, only be called cheddar flavored. Yeah. Um, by the way, Easy Cheese right now is only currently available in cheddar, sharp cheddar, cheddar and bacon, <laughs> not cheddar oh. and bacon, cheddar and bacon, and also American cheese flavors. Discontinued varieties of Easy Cheese include pimento, oh. French onion, blue cheese, oh, pizza, oh, nacho, <laughs> and shrimp cocktail. No. Oh, an abomination. <laughs> Rip. Was it cocktail easy cheese? Was everybody? that only sold in the UK? Because they oh, have something yeah, with prawns. prawns. Oh, yeah. they would have loved that. But <laughs> anyway, you can find so many types of cheddar at your grocery stores. Oh, um, yeah. And yeah, like we kind of said, we kind of touched upon like the longer it's aged, the the difference of flavor you'll get. So Absolutely. definitely will be a little bit milder if it's only aged like two to three months or somewhere around those parts. But like when you, by the time you get a four-year-old age cheddar, um, and like I said, ours was wrapped in, um, was encased in black wax. Completely. Um, so that's to, you know, help, help make yeah. sure that it stays at the mature level that it's supposed to. You're not getting extra air or, um, or light to it to kind of change the flavors at all. Yeah. Another cheese that, you know, you can really like work your way up to a more complex flavor if you're someone who is new to cheese new tasting. To cheese. Did you just, okay, so you just, yeah. <laughs> Not new to cheese in general. <laughs> One would imagine that some people Noting are. Noting the different characteristics and things like exactly, that. Exactly, so, exactly. Yeah, I think cheddar is a, is a real it's a real crowd pleaser. Absolutely. You should always have cheddar on a cheese Absolutely. board in my opinion. You should opinion. always have cheddar just on hand just in case. Somebody stops by or you get a hankering late at night. <laughs> and there's a 1,400-pound wheel in your foyer. You know? Exactly. You got to hack away at it with a cheese knife. Um, so our next flavor, we're going to Italy, of course. So 
uh, Julia's pinching her fingers together. Um, so I'm going to hand off some flavors. There you go. That's the Masiago. There's one on the other. Yep. You got that. There's a bigger piece there if you're looking for a bigger piece. Why did I think Asiago was hard? Um, it can be. Oh, okay. Um, so Asiago is a cow's milk cheese first produced in Italy that can assume different textures according to its aging. From smooth for the fresh Asiago called Asiago Presato, which means pressed Asiago, uh, to a crumbly texture for the aged cheese, which is known as Asiago Dalevo, which means breeding farm Asiago. Um, the aged cheese is often grated in salads, soups, pastas, and sauces, while the fresh Asiago, which is what we are consuming okay, today, um, is sliced to prepare panini or sandwiches. It can also be melted on a variety of dishes um, and also cantaloupe, which <laughs> I don't know why you would besmeager Asiago with the worst melon, but, you know, your <laughs> mileage may vary. I think cantaloupe is only improved when you add things to it. So if you're going to wrap it in prosciutto, great. I guess. If you're going to slap a really good cheese on it, sure. I guess. I don't know. Cantaloupe, the devil's melon. As far as I'm concerned, it should be thrown away if it's in your home. But we're never going to get sponsored by them now. We're not going to be sponsored by Big Melon now. I know the thing is my mother really loves cantaloupe. Like she'll, she goes for the, the cantaloupe cubes in a fruit salad Every day. Engineer but Josh is just shaking his head at me. He's just livid at us right now. <laughs> He's furious. <laughs> loves loves a lope. Mm, no, thank you. And a, only and thing, a dew. Loves a oh, lope and a say, dew. The only thing worse than a cantaloupe is a honeydew. <laughs> the only good melon is a watermelon. watermelon. <laughs> and it has to be perfectly ripe because otherwise it's garbage. Anyway, we're not talking about melon we're talking about cheese, cheese, specifically Asiago, which also is classified as a Swiss type or Alpine cheese. Oh, okay. Yeah. So between the 10th and 15th centuries, sheep raising was the predominant agricultural activity in the Asiago Plateau, which was known for its pastures. Asiago, the Asiago Plateau, is in the north of Italy. Um, uh, the purpose of which was the production of savory cheeses, which were originally called pigorin. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so, and also wool production. Um, destined for the textile works of the near valley of Valdagno, Schio, and Piovene Rocchette. Uh, sheep started being replaced by cattle around 1500 AD as a consequence of the modernization of breeding techniques, and especially thanks to the passage from the exploitation of the pasture to the care of the cut lawns. Uh, only in the 19th century, bovine milk replaced that of sheep in this region's cheeses. So now, Asiago is a cow's milk cheese almost exclusively. Okay. So during this period, traditional cheesemaking techniques still preserved in the farms of the plateau were improved. Thanks to the modern technology, they also spread to the small and mid-sized dairies spread out in the territory of Asiago. Asiago cheese production remained predominant in the Asiago plateau until the 19th century, and afterward, the production was also adopted in the neighboring lowland zone and in the farms of Trentino. Among the greatest causes of the spread were war events that caused a significant depopulation of the zone. Asiago was on the border with the Austrian Empire and was an area of contention in large-scale pitched battles, both during Napoleon's Italian campaign and during the First and Second World Wars. Uh, Asiago cheese was often traded alongside native Italian fowl, such as seahawks, um, and traders were received far more valuable browned corn husks or cobs. There's so much of that sentence that's just unfamiliar to me. I know. <laughs> I didn't know a Seahawk was a real thing and or that you I. would eat it. 
apparently you would eat it. I mean, you know, it's, it's wartime. So, you know, you yeah, got to really okay. find your food wherever you can find it. So uh, the Consorzio Tutela Formaggio Asiago, which is based in Vincenza, was set up in 1979 to guarantee the quality of Asiago cheese to ensure that designations, markings, and seals are used correctly and to raise awareness of the cheese in Italy and abroad. Uh, it represents more than 40 cheesemakers and cheese aging facilities. Um, however, now Asiago is produced in multiple countries around the world, including Italy, the U.S., and Australia. So Asiago has a protected designation of origin in Italian, the Denominazione di Origin Protetta, or DOP, as Asiago was originally produced around the Alpine areas of the Asiago Plateau, as you, as mentioned before. Um, Asiago cheese is one of the most typical products of the Veneto region. It was and still is the most popular and widely used cheese in the DOP area where it is produced. Um, also, the production area is strictly defined. It starts from the meadows of the Po Valley and finishes in the Alpine pastures between the Asiago Plateau and the Trentino Highlands. Um, the DOP designated area where the milk is collected and Asiago DOP cheese is produced uh, extends to four provinces in the northeast of Italy. The entire area of Vicenza and Trento and part of the provinces of Padua and Traviso. Uh, Asiago cheese, which is produced and matured in dairies located more than 600 meters or 2,000 feet above sea level using milk from farms also more than 600 meters or 2,000 feet above sea level is entitled to the additional label product of the mountains Ooh, so a very specific that's where I want mine from yeah absolutely so pairings of asiago i got this from wisconsincheese.com a great resource by the way for any cheese you would want to pair like a great inner you know great interface click 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 very easy to use okay whether young or aged asiago is a versatile cheese Put in a pint drinks that we favor with it include hard ciders and fruit beers, pilsners, pale ales, and lighter Belgian ales. If wine sounds fine, then we recommend Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Syrah. If liquor is more your speed, then both scotch and rye whiskey pair well. A nutty and assertive sake loves Asiago too. So I would again pair uh, some Asiago with some pear. Uh, I'm going to refill my Riesling glass because yeah. I was um, talking. Talking. I'll take here, inch. yeah. Take a little bit of that, um, and uh, yeah, go to town. So this is a this is a milder. This Asiago. is a mild Asiago. This is from Wegmans. <laughs> I don't know if you've ah, heard of them. Yes. They're a grocery uh-huh. store. Sidebar. It was very funny. We ordered. <laughs> I got some Australian pies from our favorite winery in town the other night. And um, they gave me a little container with like some sauces and, you know, pickles and stuff. And I go, oh, what's this red sauce? And the girl goes, um, it's ketchup. And I went, ah, ketchup. (laughs) I am familiar with the ketchup. I didn't know if it was something like fancy that I just was going to get home and not know what it was. Sounded like an alien. (laughs) Ah, ketchup. Ketchup. I am aware of ketchup, one of my favorite juices. <laughs> Sorry, I've done that. I've I've made a fool of myself easily six times this week, so I wouldn't feel bad. Um, this is good. I don't usually eat Asiago like just by itself. Yeah, you know what? I was surprised that this was the Italian cheese you picked, just because I thought there's so many. And as soon as you said it's from Northern Italy with the Alps, I went. 
oh, is this a Swiss cheese? That's Absolutely. exactly what this reminds me of. Mm-hmm. Like, just that, like, I don't know. Swiss Swiss cheese sometimes to me, like, especially Gruyere, has, like, a foot yes. flavor. I do not like Swiss cheese myself. No. no. But, I mean, this is good. Yeah, But it's good. it has that quality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was thinking about Italian cheeses, and I picked Asiago because you've got, like, your... Uh, like hard to get Italian cheeses. Oh yeah, and then you have your mozzarella, and like I could have gotten a mozzarella, but you know what does mozzarella pair with? Literally anything. True. Yeah, the air around us. Like you can just <laughs> go to town on some mozzarella. So I wanted to go with something that had like a flavor profile. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good with the. It's Riesling good with the riesling. Too. Yes, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I really guess that I had always kind of pictured. Asiago as a hard cheese that you would like great. Same. With things. So this is really cool. A fresh one is very good. Have a fresh one. All right. And you know, I couldn't talk about cheese mm-hmm. without going to my country. Of course. France. Pittsburgh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure there's any special cheese out of no? Pittsburgh. I mean, um, cheese whiz is a Philadelphia food. Yeah, that's so, true. So... I don't know. Yeah. Nacho cheese. Maybe. They put that on. on a, you know, you had a football game. <laughs> right? Eat it with sausage. You know, yeah, you guys sausage in Pittsburgh. Yeah, right? lots of sausage, lots of potatoes. <laughs> Not as much cheese, to be honest. That's too bad. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. You're talking about anyway, Pittsburgh. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, man. We're, try- we're going to eat some brie now. One of my favorite cheeses, honestly. Absolutely. So we do have two types of brie in front of us. Um, we have one from Trader Joe's that was specifically labeled as a slicing brie. So oh. you know it's fancy. Ooh. Slicing brie. Um, it's a double cream from California. And then we have this big honkin' block right here um, is a St. Andre brie that's a triple cream from mm. France. So. I'm so excited. Let's get into it. I love a cheese that I can spread. (laughs) So Brie, uh, the origin of it is it's a soft ripened cow's or sheep's milk cheese named after Brie, the French region from which it originated. It roughly corresponds to the modern département of Seine-et-Marne in France. And the name Brie is not protected, but more about that in a bit. Um, characteristics of brie. Uh, it's generally pale in color with a slight grayish tinge under a rind of white mold. The rind is typically eaten with its flavor depending largely upon the ingredients used and its manufacturing environment. And the rind is often called a bloomy rind in reference to the white velvet coat that it has on its surface. If the outside is firm and the inside is slightly bouncy and resilient, it is ready to serve. Underripe brie might be stiff to the touch, and overripe brie might be creamier and super runny. Um, Double cream or triple cream brie, you've heard these terms before. Yeah. Both double and triple creme cheeses have extra cream added before the curd is formed. So according to French law, a double creme cheese has between 60 and 75% butterfat. And all triple creme cheeses are required to have a butterfat content of 75% or more. (laughs) So when cheese people talk about the fat levels in cheese, they're actually talking about the percentage of fat in the dry matter of the cheese. So double and triple creme cheeses are in most cases fairly young and have high levels of moisture so they might still contain something like 50 percent of water Mm. so if you're talking about 
like a cheese with 70% butter fat, you're saying that of the dry matter in a cheese, about 50% of the cheese, 70% of that is butter fat. And as a point of reference, butter in America generally contains between 80 and 86% total fat. And 80% is the legal minimum for butter in the US. So So this is just cheese flavored butter as far as we're concerned for the, the, you know, to uh, be reductive. Yeah, I mean, it's like a step below (laughs) butter. But yeah, I just, I was like, oh yeah, like a triple creme cheese is 75% or more butter Damn. fat. I mean, it's, no wonder that's I what like makes it, so it delicious. Yeah. Um, so brie is, is generally, it's a mild cheese. Um, it still has very layered flavors. It mm-hmm. can boast nuttiness, sweetness, and creaminess. And these flavors will develop and change as the cheese ages. So Brie can be produced from whole or semi-skimmed milk, and the curd is obtained by adding rennet to the raw milk and warming it to maximum temperature of 37 degrees Celsius or 99 degrees Fahrenheit. The cheese is then cast into molds, often with a traditional perforated label called a pelle a brie, and the 20 centimeter or 8 inch mold is filled with several thin layers of cheese and drained for approximately 18 hours. So they don't just like fill it up and walk away. They Mm -hmm. do like fill it up a little layer, go on to the next one, come mm. back, fill it up. So it's it's a process. The cheese is then taken out of the molds. It's salted and it's inoculated with cheese culture, usually a penicillin. And it's aged in a controlled environment for at least four or five weeks. If left to mature for longer, typically several months to a year, the cheese becomes stronger in flavor and taste. Um, the, the pat or the paste of the cheese becomes drier and darker and the rind also becomes darker and crumbly and it's called brie noir. Mm. In France, brie is very different from the cheeses exported to the United States. Sure. So real French brie is unstabilized and the flavor is considered complex when the surface turns slightly brown. If the cheese is still pure white, it's not matured yet. Mm. Um, when the che- If the cheese is cut before the maturing process, it won't develop properly. So exported brie to the US is stabilized and it doesn't have the chance to mature. Okay. So over here, unless you've been to like a very specialty cheese shop, you've probably never had like what brie was supposed to taste like. Most likely. We'd have to go up to Niagara and Lake and go to Cheese Secrets. I forgot about Cheese Secrets. Do you remember Cheese Secrets? Cheese Secrets. (laughs) You have to say it like that. Yeah. That's that's, the name of your store. Yeah. Great store in Niagara on the Lake that provides import cheeses from around Canada and the and Europe, Ugh. and it's called Cheese Secret. We absolutely have to get some of the some of the good yeah. some of the good French brie. Mm-hmm. Um, so the stuff that comes to the U.S. it's stabilized, and stabilized brie has a much longer shelf life, and mm. it is not as susceptible to bacteriological infections. When you're planning to serve brie, take it out of the refrigerator about an hour before eating so it allows the cheese to come to room temperature and it should be irresistibly creamy. Mm. Um, Cutting into brie halts the ripening process. So at that point, you eat the cheese within the next several days or refrigerate it until your next snacking occasion. Uh, The trick is to wrap the remaining cheese in waxed or parchment paper. Avoid using plastic wrap for fresh brie so that allows the rind to continue to breathe and stay dry. So please... Oh, help yourself. You so this is the 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 slicing brie is a double cream, and the Saint Andre brie is the triple cream. The slicing brie is so firm, right? Like I feel Perfect like for slicing. I, like after reading more about brie, I've like oh yeah, I've definitely had like underripe brie before because mm-hmm. you know sometimes you're like oh yeah, I'll just buy this like four dollar one at the store, mm-hmm. and then you're like eating it, and you're like I'm not actually enjoying this. <laughs> But the, oh, sorry, I just, 
No, it's fine. With my fingers. I just ate some <laughs> of the triple cream brie and... This slicing brie is perfectly fine. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's not. Absolutely not. With a little bit of cranberry sauce on this. So Great Christmas-y. idea. So things that you would pair brie with. Traditionally, the French give cheese its own dedicated course at a meal. It's served just before, before dessert and brie is often included in that. But fruit-wise... Um, I would go with fruit with an intense and slightly acidic flavor. So things like cherries, blueberries, um, apricot or fig or fruit preserves. As we all know, you we freaking love a baked brie that you just, you know, slap some berry jam on and then wrap it up in a <laughs> wrap it up in some puff pastry and toss that puppy in the oven and you got yourself a primo super easy. This triple cream brie. <laughs> It's changing my life. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's so, so buttery. Oh my God. So with wine, um, again, kind of depends on what kind of brie you're getting. So brie can be mild and slightly chalky, or it can be decadently gooey and very strong in flavor. So you need to adapt the wine or other drink you choose to how mature the cheese is. Um, your go-to beverage to pair with brie is champagne. Sorry, everybody. Absolutely. You're just going to have to do it. And I hope you enjoy it. Um, there's also soft or fruity red wines like Pinot Noir will contrast beautifully with the mellowness of brie. And acidic, herbaceous, dry white wines like Sauvignon Blanc also work well. Um, for beer, uh, fruitier beers like a Creek or a Framboise or a highly carbonated beer like a Pilsner go really well with brie. Um Definitely a baguette or a crusty bread that won't compete with the brie. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily want like a very overly flavored bread because yeah. the brie's like funk or nuttiness or creaminess might compete with that. Um, plain crackers are another great example. Yeah. Or just eat it off your finger like I just did. Um, also earthy nuts. <laughs> earthy nuts, earthy Lauren. Nuts. Like uh, unsalted pecans or or maybe even candied walnuts go really well. And I was looking at the um, the company, the President Brie you know, mm-hmm. you see that one in the mm-hmm. grocery store often. They say, what better to pair with brie than more cheese? <laughs> I was like, I see. I see what you guys Geniuses. are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, like light and fresh fruit juices like apple or grape juice also Ooh. pair really great with with a brie as well. So, you know what I got with this one specifically? I bet almonds. Oh, yeah. Like the Marcona, Marcona almonds. Absolutely. With this? Mm. That would be great. Absolutely. Yeah. That triple cream brie is... Mm. I'm enjoying that. So guys, also eat the rind. Like I know so many, I have seen so many people just like scoop out the middle part and like just leave the rind on their plate. And if you do that in France, they they won't let you back. in the eye with their lit cigarette. Both your eyes. Boop, boop. (laughs) It's extremely gauche to leave the rind of your cheese on a plate if it's supposed to be an edible rind. Obviously, wax don't eat yeah, it don't eat the wax or like um i think like a parmesan rind might be like too hard yeah, to eat yeah i don't be think like non on that uh, although you're supposed a good way mm-hmm. to do it is put it in soups yes you put the parmesan rind in a soup and dig it out like a bay leaf yes and it provides a lovely richness to it's your supposed soup to be great. Mm-hmm. exactly i am definitely guilty of eating around the rind because sometimes some breeze especially if it's an especially funky brie the rind can be like too much. It's like a, a concentrated hit of that like sheepy lanolin quality that just goes straight up your nose. And sometimes that is not, I mean, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm just saying like, I'm confessing. And I'm telling you, 
that if I see you do it, I'm going to judge you. She's going to put her lit cigarette in front of my <laughs> You know me. Uh, Chain smoking Julia. Je te love. So a little bit of trivia about this. Um, so despite the variety of breeds around the world, the French government officially certifies only two types of cheese to be sold under that name, Brie de Meaux and Brie de Melon. So Brie de Meaux is um, spelled M-E-A-U-X. It's an unpasteurized brie. Um, it usually weighs about six pounds. It's usually like 14 or 15 inches in diameter, manufactured in the town of Meaux in the Brie region of northern France, which is about 50 kilometers to the east of Paris. Um, it's been manufactured there since the 8th century and it was granted the protection of Appellation d'Origine Controle, AOC, status in 1980. And the other one is Brie de Melun, M-E-L-U-N. Um, that has an average weight of about 3.3 pounds and a diameter of about 11 inches. So it's a lot smaller than the Brie de Meaux, um, but it's considered to have a stronger flavor and more pungent smell. It's made with unpasteurized milk. And this was also granted the protection of AOC status in 1980. Legend has it that in the 8th century, French Emperor Charlemagne first tasted the soft cheese at a monastery in Roulon Brie and fell instantly in love with its creamy, rich flavor. And he was so taken with Brie that he arranged for regular shipments to his castle in Aachen. It is also said that the last wish of King Louis XVI, the last king of France before the fall of the monarchy during the French Revolution, his last wish was a tasting of brie cheese. Of course. Uh, the Congress of Vienna in 1814 to 1815 was one of the most important international conferences in European history. It essentially remade Europe after the downfall of French Emperor Napoleon I. Um, so it was a meeting of ambassadors of European states held in Vienna from November 1814 to June 1815. So this is like... This is an intense conference. Yeah. This isn't just a weekend at the Radisson. No. This is a, you are decamping to Vienna and we are going to remake Europe. <laughs> so the Damn. objective of this was to provide a long-term peace plan for Europe with the goal not only to restore old boundaries, but to resize the main powers so they could balance each other and remain at peace. And during all of this, sure. they took a break and held a cheese contest. <laughs> That's adorable. So more than 60 varieties of cheese were brought together. Um, they were all tasted with great attention. And after a vote, the ambassadors agreed there was no other cheese that matched up to the Brie de Meaux and declared it Le Roi de Fromage or King of Cheeses. Perfectly acceptable. I mean, it's a wonderful cheese. Big fan. Big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of cheese contests, I have a couple of great cheese festivals around the world. <sighs> This is just a smattering of... We should, uh, we should go, go to, to some. Well, yeah. there are some that we can get to. Oh, yeah. So just you wait. So first, you have the Festival of Cheese the, from the American Cheese Society. It is known as the Big Wheel of U.S. Cheese Festivals. So the ACS Annual Conference it. boasts educational seminars for cheesemakers and aficionados alike. You can choose tasting or pairing seminars or spend an afternoon making cheese with an expert. Um, throughout is a rigorous competition featuring over 1,500 cheese entries in more than 100 categories. On the final evening, the event opens to the public for a fee, and every single entry is portioned and plated so you can dive in for a sample, making for a stunning display of dairy decadence. Uh, the festival usually takes place in August, and its location changes annually, so make sure that you check the American Cheese Society website. I'm assuming it's AmericanCheeseSociety.org. It BigCheese.org. Oh, I'll have to check. Um, also, you have the Great British Cheese Festival. Um, it is what it says it is. 
It's, yeah, the Great British Cheese Festival. There are over 400 cheeses there made from cow, goat, sheep, and water buffalo milk. They are accompanied by artisan wine, beer, cider, and perry, which is a fermented beverage made from pears, um, and the people who produce them. The, hell, the event is held in late September, and again, locations vary. Then you have, I mean, what would be cheese without Wisconsin, the Great Wisconsin oh my Cheese gosh, Festival. Right. The Great Cheese State of Wisconsin holds one heck of a cheese festival on the first weekend of June. Cheese fans descend upon the town of Little Shoot. Little Shoot, Wisconsin. This family-friendly event offers three days of music, a parade, tastings, cheese carving demonstrations, cheesecake contest, cheese curd eating contests, and a carnival. America's Dairyland. America's Dairyland, everybody. Can you... <laughs> a cheese curd eating contest? That sounds absolutely disgusting. I, I don't want to be... so any, squeaky. It'd be extremely squeaky. No, thank you. Um, here's the one that I think we should go to. The Great Canadian Cheese Festival. So apparently Canada has been quietly producing phenomenal artisan cheeses for decades. And now this festival calls attention to that fact. First held in 2010, this June celebration is held in Prince Edward County, Ontario. All right. Which is literally directly across Lake Ontario from us right now. Um, It is an up and coming culinary destination in Canada's newest wine region. You know what I'm saying. pointed at me. And I pointed at you because we could And then gave me a knowing look i did because i think we should go and do this two for one two for one events include cheese tasting seminars cheese tours we have to sign up early because they sell out weeks ahead well sure and a celebrity chef gala featuring pairings with ontario wine and craft beer we're going we're going whenever this whenever we're allowed back into canada oh we are gonna take canada by storm in like the best possible way not like in an invasion oh not like in an american way not like in an american (laughs) way in in an appreciative oh yay we're back i would love to buy your wares canada um yeah so get ready canada we're coming we're coming coming for you you. (laughs) uh and finally the amish country cheese festival so this illinois festival takes place on labor day weekend and offers more than just cheese. Expect traditional Amish foods and handicrafts. You're being paid. No, I'm not paid by anybody. You have to tell me if you are. The Amish are not paying me at all. Um, Expect traditional Amish foods and handicrafts, a farm shop, a parade, a tractor pull, and the International Cheese Curling Championships where they use a four-pound cheese stone for curling. That's our new sport, Lauren. Cheese curling. Because then at the end, whether you win or lose, nom, nom, noms. And it's cold. It's kept cold because it's on ice, <laughs> presumably. My mind is blown. Blown, I know. Also, I want to tell you about a woman who's a cheese sculptor. Her name is Sarah Kaufman. So in professional circles and beyond, she's known as the cheese lady. She oh, is one right. of three professional cheese sculptors in the U.S., but she's also part of a growing movement of artists bringing food, art, out-of-state fairs, And into the mainstream. Three years ago, Kaufman was able to make a cheese sculpting her full-time job. (gasps) She sculpts cheese for weddings, Super Bowl parties, corporate groups, and dairy associations, which keeps her busy carving into huge blocks of cheese. How how did we not know about this? I know. I feel you could have had a cheese sculpture at your wedding. I could have damn. You you know what? Play ball next year, Strong Museum of Play. Get Sarah Kaufman to carve you a giant, I don't know, 
uh, what's a, a great idea? What's a toy? A giant a Snoopy. To- what's a toy? Or a giant. Um, uh, what could, what would be great? What would be a great toy made of cheese? Optimus Prime. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I'm sending this to our yes. institutional advisory department right now. right now. So her creations have ranged from a life-size Santa Claus to a six-foot-long model of the USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier. I love that. Uh, Kaufman told NPR, quote, the cheese found me. What's more, she says, quote, it's much more delightful than working with wood or stone. You can snack while you work. Sarah Kaufman's got it all figured We're out. We're quitting our jobs. <laughs> We're going to start sculpting cheese from here on out. <gasps> Doesn't that sound wonderful? She has the best that job be and the best life. such a, f- like a fun thing to try out. Yeah. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we're this, secretly really good at cheese sculpting. Maybe we're really good at cheese sculpting. I've never and we tried just it. don't know. We have a whole plate of cheese here. We can start. So she uses like cheddar. Yeah, she seems to use okay, mostly so cheddar. It's kind of like it's soft ish. You mm-hmm. can carve into it, but it's not going to collapse. No. And she states, it seems like she works in like a, especially when she's doing like state fair stuff, mm-hmm. like the butter sculpture in the New York State Fair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The great New York State Fair. Um, I've still never been. Uh, I wouldn't really kill myself to go to go to to the fair or fair as Steve and his family call it fair. You going to fair this year? Oh yeah, I'm going to fair. (laughs) Let's go to fair. Yeah. Fair. Steve, she's not even, she's not even had like one glass of wine. No, not even a full glass of wine here. And I am salty like the cheese. Anyway, speaking of Steven, my husband, Mm -hmm. he told me that in the Vidya game, the Witcher three, which he plays pretty often. There is apparently a side quest called Of Dairy and Darkness, where you, as the Witcher, encounter a laboratory of the wizard Aramas, the Tyromancer. So Tyromancy is a real ass thing, which is an obsolete form of like alchemy, where you uh, it's a form of divination which features the use of cheeses and their gradual maturing. You use like the mold and the scent and, you know, of it maturing to predict the future. And then at the end of the quest, if you win uh, or whatever, I don't know. I don't play video games. Um, you get a sword called the Emmentaler. Okay. First of all, that's very funny. Yeah, that's what Second, I Second, I'm glad he told you this. Third of all, <laughs> if it's so obscure, why don't we become Tyromancers? <laughs> yeah, we could really corner the market on Tyromancy. We could tell, you know what? There, You know how many psychics and tarot card readers there are? It's too many. They're flood the market. You know, a lot of people, we do a different thing. You bring us a cheese. And we'll tell you. And we'll tell you your future. future. And, you know, the cheese, it really just found us. <laughs> the cheese found us. I'm going to use that line all, all the, the time. time. No, it's wonderful. Are you eating more ice cream? Well, the ice cream found me. Yeah, it found me. I didn't, I was an uh, innocent party in all of this. Oh my gosh. So good. Do you have any more or no? I don't have any more. Okay, great. So um, we do have a quiz. We split a quiz. Would you like we some more? We split a quiz. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Our quiz is called, obviously, Working on My Night Cheese. This is a quiz about the works of Tina Fey and Bob Seger. I covered our Tina Fey questions. Question one. In 2008, the Associated Press gave Tina Fey the AP Entertainer of the Year Award for her recurring TV performance as which then-topical persona? Question two. 
Tina Fey made her rapping debut on the 2012 mixtape Royalty by which artist, who she had previously hired for the 30 Rock Writers Room? Question three. Multiple choice. Back in her second city days in Chicago, Tina Fey and other members of the improvisational theater troupe lent their voices to the in-game sounds of which hit pinball machine released by Williams in 1997? Is it A, Monster Bash, B, Medieval Madness, C, The Addams Family, or D, Funhouse? Question four. Tina Fey and Robert Carlock co-created which joke-dense streaming series with main characters named Lillian Kaustepper, Jackie Lynn White, and Ronald Wilkerson? Question 5. Between SNL and hosting the Golden Globes, the collaborative chemistry between Tina Fey and Amy Poehler has been evident on our television screens for close to two decades now. The duo has also appeared in four movies together. Can you name me three of them? Question number six. Five questions on Bob Seger. Right out the gate, is Bob Seger alive or dead? Question number seven. Seger's classic 1986 number one single, Like a Rock, is probably best known to our generation as the song played incessantly during a car commercial. What car company utilized Like a Rock in their ad campaign for trucks? Question number seven. Seeger's classic Night Moves isn't the only crossover to 30 Rock. The song was inspired by this fellow singer-songwriter and member of the Highwaymen, whose alliterative name is well-known in both music and movies, as he's also known as an award-winning actor, winning a Golden Globe for his role in 1976's A Star is Born. His first name is also the same as one of Liz Lemon's boyfriends. Name him. Question number eight. Bob's soft rock anthem, We've Got Tonight, was written after Bob went to see this 1973 movie, which features a conversation between the character played by Robert Redford and a woman he's attracted to, played by Demetra Arliss, who says, I don't even know you. Redford's response, you know me, it's two in the morning and I don't know anybody. And Bob went nuts for it. Name this film, which also featured Paul Newman, about a couple of grifters who plot to con a mob boss. And finally, question number 10. This infuriating song is probably the one most associated with our boy Bob. It's been featured in tons of things, but was first featured in Risky Business during a classic scene with Tom Cruise. The song is also featured in episodes of The Nanny, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, South Park, and The Flash. It was also used in the teaser trailer for Garfield the Movie. Name this anthem of baby boomers everywhere. We'll give you about a minute to think about all of this and... Eat some more cheese. Yeah. And we'll be back with your answers. I was a little too tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy Working on mysteries without any clues Working on our night moves 
trying to make some front page driving news. Working on our nine moves. Great questions. I'm very proud of us. I know more about Bob Seger than I thought I did. Thank you. Right? You're welcome. I didn't realize. I mean, I'm not. We'll talk about it. But yeah. All right. Question one. In 2008, the Associated Press gave Tina Fey the AP Entertainer of the Year Award for her recurring TV performance as which then topical person? Uh, That would be Sarah Palin. You are correct. Yeah. Question two. Tina Fey made her rapping debut on the 2012 mixtape Royalty by which artist who she had previously hired for the 30 Rock Writers Room? Um, The only one that I can think of who's a rapper and also was a writer on 30 Rock was Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino. Childish Gambino. Nice. Exactly. She guested on the song Real Estate along with Alley Boy and Swank. And I listened to this today and I'm like, okay, it's like a, it's like a five and a half minute song. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. Yeah, there's some rapping. Oh, did I like miss her? Did they just like, you know, did she just get in there and be like, yeah, or something <laughs> like that? Yeah. And then at like the five minute mark, it's just Tina Fey <laughs> rapping and it is... <laughs> I'll have to find a link for that because that sounds so, amazing. It's it's an insane song. I got to tell you. Um, I used to do improv with Donald Glover back in college. This is my one claim to fame. Yeah, I know. Na- name drop. Um, he used to hang out at the parties because he used to be in Wicked Wicked Hammercats at NYU when he was still in college mm-hmm. um, because he's the same age as us. I think he's a year older than me. But he would DJ the parties at the uh-huh. houses when we would do like, um, we'd go to Skidmore mm-hmm. and there would be like, a, I guess like a, improv competition conference type thing i was extremely were you doing cool. like improv offs in the hallways yeah would your group like <laughs> snap up to the we, other groups we would and get say, like dennis office <laughs> no we would get on like, the moon <laughs> we would definitely get like 15 minute sets where we were allowed to do like a couple of sketches and maybe some long form we were always the only people who did short form because no one likes short form. It's garbage. That's, you know, whose line is it anyway? And mm-hmm. people who really do improv do long form improv, mm-hmm. regardless of whether, I mean, I did improv for five years in college. I'm sorry. But he was so nice and very quiet. Like when he wasn't on stage or wasn't mm-hmm. like, you know, performing, he would just like chill out behind the DJ booth or whatever they set up as the DJ booth. And I chatted with him a couple of times. By no means do I know him. <laughs> like if he, if we crossed each other on the street, he would not be like, oh my God, Lauren. I was going to say, Lauren, if you know Donald Glover, then you're only one step away from Channing Tatum. Oh my God. Oh my God. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Oh, man, I should have become closer friends with him. You should. <laughs> Damn. All right. Have your husband build you a time machine. All right. I'll try and do that. <laughs> My husband buy me a, build me a time machine. Yeah, that's the way to go. It's the only way. Question three. This is multiple choice for you. Uh, back in her second city days in Chicago, Tina Fey and other members of the improvisational theater troupe lent their voices to the in-game sounds of which hit pinball machine released by Williams in 1997? Is it A, Monster Bash, B, Medieval Madness, C, The Addams Family, or D, Funhouse? I know next to nothing about pinball machines. Mm-hmm. So I'm. this is a complete guess on my... Okay. Is it Addams Family? The answer is Medieval Madness. Oh, okay. So um, I know the Strong has a game of it. We used to also play it over at the Playhouse over um, 
Oh, yeah, of course. In the South Wedge. So Medieval Madness. um, Much of the game's dialogue was actually written by Scott Adsit and Kevin Dorff, who were at the time members of Second City. And Adsit also did some of the voice work. And Tina Fey and Andrea Farrell provided the voices of the various princesses in the game, Mm. um, one of which has a real valley girl accent, too. (laughs) Of course. So in the game, you know, there's a castle. You're storming it. There's peasants revolting. There's a catapult that will sometimes do a cow or a chicken or something like that anyway it's it's a fun game like it, you know how like sometimes you walk up to a pinball machine and you're like i'm just gonna hit the buttons and yeah see i mean that's happens. all i do um but but medieval man is like because th- there's dialogue and because there's sounds at the mm-hmm. game like it actually you kind of seems yeah and it's and it's like consistently one of like the top rated pinball games of all time cool question four Tina and Robert Carlock co-created which joke-dense streaming series with main characters named Lillian Cowstipper, Jackie Lynn White, and Ronald Wilkerson? That's uh, Unbreakable. They alive, damn it. Unbreakable. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Exactly. Um, So um, uh, Jacqueline, Mm. who... This comes Kimmy's boss uh, was born Jackie Lynn White on the show, and also um, Titus. Uh, his his original name is Ronald Wilkerson, which is much less exciting. It really is. I love that show. Ugh. I'm working my way through Thirty Rock right now, and then after I'm done with that, I'm just gonna hop right into Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm finding like early Thirty Rock to be very comforting. Like, who knew that 2006 was going to be a quaint time? I'm just like, oh, this is so nice. <laughs> And question five. Between SNL and hosting the Golden Globes, the collaborative chemistry between Tina Fey and Amy Poehler has been evident on our television screens for close to two decades now. The duo has also appeared in four movies together. Can you name me three of them? Okay. Um, one is Baby Mama. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, one is... Was it just called Sisters? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. great. And then... Uh, were they both in Wine Country or yes. is that the name of it? Yep. Wine Country? Mm-hmm. Were they both in that? Yep. Okay, great. Yes. Uh, you did miss the big one. Which one was that? Mean Girls. Oh, my God. I forgot that they were both in Mean yeah. Girls. Oh, yeah. I'm not a mom. I'm a cool mom. Yeah. Damn. I forgot she was in that. <laughs> um, also, I found out that Tina and Amy will be hosting the 2021 Golden Globes. Oh, then I have to watch it. Absolutely. Who knows in what form it'll be, but yeah, exactly. they are signed on to be the hosts. I'm in. Good job, Lauren. Thank you, Julia. All right, here we go. Five questions on Bob Seeger. Question number six, right out the gate. Is Bob Seeger alive or dead? Alive. He is alive and kicking. He's 75 at the time of the recording of this podcast. Uh, question number seven. Seeger's classic 1986 number one single, Like a Rock, is probably best known to our generation as the song played incessantly during a car commercial. What car company utilized Like a Rock in their ad campaign for trucks? Is it Chevrolet? It is Chevrolet. It was Chevy's longest running ad campaign running from 91 to 2004. Uh, the song was parodied as Tastes Like Liberty for Krusty Burger's Rib Witch in the Simpsons episode, I'm Spelling As Fast As I Can. That one's for Engineer Josh. Uh, the song was also featured in the 2005 film The Weatherman, starring Nicolas Cage and Michael Caine, which was a terrible movie. Michael Caine said he would do anything. Oh, yeah. You know? He's rolling it. He is the closest thing we have to Scrooge McDuck with the money bin. I Absolutely. Think. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I feel like a lot of British actors are like, yeah, this is a job. Whatever. I don't care. 
Like, are you going to pay me? Great. I'll show up on set. I'll learn my lines. Done. Uh, question number eight, Seeger's classic night moves. Isn't the only crossover to 30 rock. The song was inspired by this fellow singer songwriter and member of the highwaymen whose alliterative name is well known in both music and movies as he's also an award-winning actor winning a golden globe for his role in 1976's a star is born. His first name is also the same as one of Liz Lemon's boyfriends name him. Is this Chris Christopherson? It is Chris Christopherson. <laughs> I was like, I feel like Chris Christopherson is not like super well known. Mm-hmm. So I had to, and I remembered that Liz Levin. I have like something, something Barbara Streisand associated in my head. It's because she starred with him in A Star is Born. Great. And the, um, the poster for the movie is like a very sensual, like they're both topless, like making out. It's I, it's intense and they both have the exact same perm like their hair their hair I'm gonna look it up I'm gonna look it up to show you <laughs> they have the exact same hair in this poster it's it's so 70s it actually hurts oh you can't tell where one ends and one begins I know right it's very sensual um so there you go and it just says Streisand Christofferson a star is born anyway nice wrong one okay <clears throat> Question number nine, Bob's soft rock anthem, We've Got Tonight, was written after Bob went to see this 1973 movie, which features a conversation between the character played by Robert Redford and a woman he's attracted to played by Demetra Arliss, who says, I don't even know you. Redford's response, you know me. It's two in the morning and I don't know nobody. And Bob went nuts for it. Name this film, which also features Paul Newman, about a couple of grifters who plot to con a mob boss. Who says television doesn't help you with answers? Because on an episode today of The Chase, I learned that this is The Sting. It is The Sting. Um, This is a nice little fact. Since the death of his mother, Charlotte Seeger, Seeger has made a point of always including We've Got Tonight in his live set list as it was her favorite of his compositions. Isn't that nice? Question number 10. This infuriating song is probably the one most associated with our boy Bob. It's been featured in tons of things, but was first featured in Risky Business during a classic scene with Tom Cruise. The song is also featured in episodes of The Nanny, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, South Park, and The Flash. It was also used in the teaser trailer for Garfield the Movie. Name this anthem of baby boomers everywhere. Dun, 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 dun. Lord Jesus. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> this is that old music ain't got the soul it's that old time of rock and roll it is old time rock and roll um that song is on my list of classic rock songs that sends me into incandescent rage whenever i hear it uh other songs on that list include anything by paul mccartney uh, but especially anything by Wings, The Joker by Steve Miller Band, Sweet Child of Mine, and of course, Follow Me by Uncle Cracker is the one that makes me want to scream and scream until I die. So that, <laughs> so that was my five questions on Bob Seger. I didn't realize how many classic songs he wrote. Yeah, I don't me love all of them. Yeah. We've got tonight. Mm, I will. I will groove to that no matter where. If I'm in Wegmans, and I'm like in the Cracker aisle. I'm like, yes, we've got tonight. Yeah, that's my jam. <laughs> that is my jam. But old time rock and roll makes me want to stab out my own eyeballs. So I understand. Yeah. So I anyway, have, I have many songs that is the same way. Oh, yeah. There's a my list of songs that make me want to scream and scream until I die is much longer than songs I like. <laughs> <laughs> Significantly longer. 
So thank you, everybody, we for cheesing we along hope at home you with enjoyed us. this, and we thought it would be fun. If you hated it, please don't tell us that you hated it. Yeah, don't say anything. <laughs> this was for you. We did this for you. We ate four pounds of cheese, <laughs> and three on baguettes, ca- on and two bottles of wine on mic for you, the for listeners. You. No, but we hope you have a very um, happy and uh, safe and healthy American Thanksgiving mm-hmm. to all of our listeners in the United States. And, um, you know, Black Friday is coming up and uh, Tee Public is doing a, a sale, I believe. We got an email from our rep. I oh think. my God, what a great segue. I was like, Black Friday is coming up. Yeah, Black Friday is coming up. And uh, if you want a, a, a holiday gift for um, another person who listens to this podcast, you know, tens of people listen to this podcast. So I'm sure you could find somebody to buy a T-shirt or a mask or a mug or a or mug a or, a, or a notebook. Or notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my mother specifically texted me to say that the women's sizes run small. Mm, okay. So keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, just as an FYI, maybe size up one. Uh, my mom got a regular long sleeve shirt. Sent me a picture. Looks great. Fantastic. I didn't realize how big the logo would be, but <laughs> I mean, she likes it. Go big or go home, as far as I'm concerned, you know. And we'll have uh, we'll have some other designs coming soon, yes. if not by the time that this up comes out. So yeah, we're very excited about things that are in in the works. So uh, stay tuned for that. But um, thanks so much for cheesing along with us, everybody. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.